So this week marks our inaugural sermon series for St. Peter's Fireside called Marked by Charcoal. And uh, in it, uh, the na- it, it's capturing the name of our church. St. Peter's Fireside is about two fireside encounters that Peter had in the Gospels. At the first, and we're told it was a charcoal fire, he denies Jesus. And this is interesting because it's something Peter swore he would never do. He swore he would never deny Jesus. He swore he would even die before denying Jesus. But there he found himself at this first charcoal fire denying Jesus. But then in John 21, we're told about a second fireside scene, again at a charcoal fire. And this time, Peter is there with Jesus after the resurrection. And then Jesus is restoring him. Three times Peter denied him. Three times Peter, uh, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter encounters grace at his worst moment. And he learns that even though he had abandoned Jesus, Jesus hadn't abandoned him. And he's offered grace and forgiveness. But at that fireside, it's not where it ends. Jesus says, feed my sheep. He sends them out into the world. And so what you want to do in this is, how did Peter go into the world after this event? How was he marked by charcoal from this event? What did his life look like after encountering grace? And so to do that, we're going to look at four scenes over the next four weeks from Peter's life in the book of Acts. And this week we're looking at Acts 3. And in it, we'll see how God's message of restoration, which is at the heart of the gospel, transformed Peter and flowed through Peter to others. Because when the gospel comes to us, it always comes to us on its way to somebody else. And so this scene, it can be broken down into two sections. The first is the human proclivity to cling to the wrong things. That's the first half of the text. And then the second half is uh, Peter's crash course and course correction to get people clinging to the right things. So let's walk through this scene together. If, you've, if you have your Bibles handy, uh, that would be super helpful to keep out. Uh, this, the text is also in your service sheet. So verse 1, Peter and John, they're heading to the temple. The stage is set and we're told uh, they're going at the ninth hour. And in case you're curious, that's 3 p.m. Clearly these guys like to sleep in. And uh, they're, they're, they're about evening church. They're about going for prayer. And then in verse 2, we're told of an unnamed lame man. And he's crippled in his feet. And each day, people would carry him to the gate called Beautiful outside the temple. And he was helpless. He had to be carried. And each day he would beg. He would beg for alms, for money. And and he was physically disabled. He was a beggar. It was likely that he had to beg for survival. Because he can't work. That was his life. Being carried to and from this gate. Begging in between. Helpless broken, poor, and his condition in that day and age would have inhibited him from fully worshiping in the temple. That was his life. Then verse 4 tells us that he asked Peter and John for alms. And then Peter just does two things that are so astounding. The first is he says, look at us. It's personal. He makes eye contact with this man. Because this man was made in the image of God. This man matters to God and he should not be overlooked. This is not just a blanket coat healing. This is a personal encounter. And then the second thing Peter does is quite profound. Verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Love this so much. I have nothing. I have no silver and gold. I have no material wealth. I have no great possessions. But I do have Jesus. 
And he possesses me, and in him I have everything. So what I do have, I give to you. I give you Jesus, a treasure of which nothing can touch. That song we sang during our offering, uh, Mike actually wrote that song. It's, It's fantastic. And I love the one line that says, alms were all he was hoping for, not knowing that there was more. Alms were all he was hoping for, not knowing that there was more. This man, he received so much more than he ever thought was possible. It wasn't even on his radar, I imagine, that his condition could change. This was it. This was life. This is what his life had been like since birth, we're told. And then suddenly, everything changed. He asked for silver and gold, and what he got was restoration. What he got was the name of Jesus. But I think we need to stop here for a second. Some of you are looking at this text and you're thinking, miracles? Like, come on, this is a little much. So let me say three things quite quickly. First, um, if you believe in God, uh, by logical necessity, God must be able to perform miracles. And even though you might find the miracles in the scriptures a little embarrassing or something you need to explain, think about it. If God created the world, if the scriptures are right, if he sustains every particle and quirk and string by his sustaining word, then he can do whatever he wants with the universe. Second, maybe you're thinking, well, I just don't think that the laws of nature can be broken. But if the past 30 years of chaos theory and quantum physics show us anything, it's that the laws of nature aren't nearly as static as we like to think. That they don't operate the same way every time. And so miracles certainly are possible within this universe. But more importantly, to deny miracles is actually ethnocentric. That's the real problem. There's a guy named Craig Keener. He wrote two volumes on miracles. It's, it's huge. And he, he went around the world and, and, and tried to find miracles, and he did. But he said, what the problem is in the Western world, we stand uh, taller. We think that our culture is somehow better than these primitive cultures that are clinging to old uh, mythologies and misplaced things. And so we stand above them thinking that our culture somehow has a better grasp of the known, the known universe. It's ethnocentrism. But the temptation is to get caught up in the miracle and to look no further, to stop there, to not actually look to Jesus. It's sort of like dating someone um, based on their looks alone. You go on that first date, you know, it's, it's in a beautiful restaurant, it's dimly lit, both of you look great, and then all of a sudden you see one another in daylight and you start to kind of see the little imperfections right? The little things. And so you just write that person off instead of getting to know the person under the skin, instead of getting to know the person that you were sitting across from. That's how some of us treat Jesus. We see something about him that we can't wrap our heads around. And so we look away instead of looking deeper into the man, getting to know him and understand him. And we'll see that this text, it talks about that danger keeping our eyes fixed on the miracle instead of looking to Jesus, the one who made the miracle possible. So back to the scene at hand. This man who was healed, he initially responded so beautifully. Look at verse 8 with me. It says that he leaped up. He leaps up, filled with joy. He, He starts walking and praising God. And by any means, this is a proper response. He's not just mobile, he's ecstatic. He's been miraculously healed. 
But almost immediately in verse 11, he assumes a very different posture. We're told he's clings, he's clinging to Peter and John in Solomon's portico. And that the crowd gathers around and are astounded with Peter and John. They're looking no further than the miracle and the apostles. They look across from one another. They look at what happened, but they don't look up to God. And we do this too. We do this too. We cling to the wrong things. That's the proclivity of our hearts. For some of us, rather than going directly to Jesus, you outsource your spirituality. You cling to authors or sermons or friends who get it. And in and of themselves, these are not bad things. But you're not actually going to Jesus. You let other people do the work of following Jesus for you. And you think by association, then I'm okay. But ultimately, you're not really encountering Christ. For some of us, we're clinging to things that aren't working. But it's because you don't know that something more is available. You settle for alms rather than restoration. You may cling to that dysfunctional relationship, that relationship where everyone around you is saying, this is not good, but you keep doing it. You might cling to that habit that maybe no one knows about, but you know about when you go home. Or maybe everyone knows about it. Maybe it's that habit of you go out and your life is about the party. It's about the drugs. It's about drinking. It's about sleeping around. Because deep down, what you think is this is all there is to life, so I better live it up. Some of us still, you'd prefer the silver or the gold. You cling to your bank statements, your careers, your, your goals. Or, you, or maybe you cling to your, your family or your hobbies. You know, or your ideologies, your political parties. Whatever it is that you cling to, it becomes your all. And, and what you value isn't Jesus. You might even pray to God, but in your prayers, what you really want is the gift, not the giver. But it's easy to look at these things. What we, what we need to ask is, what is the heart of our clinging? Why is it that we cling? Part of it could be ignorance. We just don't know better. But the truth is, I think we cling and we don't turn to Jesus in these things because we know turning to Jesus is costly. If you stop clinging to other people's spirituality and go to Jesus, it means you might have to start to address things in your life that you don't want to address. It means work. It means you might have to put some effort into this and it might not be comfortable and it might be hard. It could be working through deep-seated resentments towards others. It could be working through deep-seated resentments towards God. It could be doubts and hard questions that scare you, and it's just too costly to address them. If you stop clinging to what you think life has to offer you and go to Jesus, it might mean you have to let go of something that you like. You might have to let go of that relationship or that habit, whatever it is. It might mean stepping forward into a changed life and you might not fully understand what that life will look like and so in a way you're stepping forward into the unknown and away from the familiar. It's too costly. It's too great of a risk. If you stop clinging to the things that give you security and go to Jesus, you might have to give up what gives you a sense of worth. It means your life might actually start to look different than how you would like it to look. It means that what you value and your priorities might have to go through a complete reorientation. It means you might not be defined by the bank account anymore or by the career anymore. 
But what I think is also at the heart of why we cling is that in clinging, we at least get to choose what we cling to. We get to retain a sense of control. We get to be the center of our own little universe. Julia, when she recognizes that she's doing this, she calls herself the queen of the universe. You know, when something doesn't go her way and, and she digs her heels in, she says, oh, I'm being the queen of the universe. When I do something wrong, when I'm trying to get the center of the world, she calls me um, Sledgehammer Saul. I don't know why. This is just what she calls me. You can ask her. The reformer, Martin Luther, he gets this. He gets this clinging. He says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that's really your God. And so we cling. We cling to people. We cling to less than what's available. We cling to the things that give us a sense of worth. But if you're not clinging to Jesus, this text tells us that you're radically off course. It's sort of like traveling with my parents. Um, Julia and I have been fortunate enough to go on many vacations with my parents. And they always bring along my aunt and my uncle. And inevitably, the six of us end up just horrifically lost. You know that proverb, you know, getting lost is a great way to find yourself? No, it's not. That is the worst wisdom I've ever heard. My parents, they know two directions, lost and very lost. To put it in perspective, a few years ago, we went to St. Martin. It's an island kind of by Jamaica in the Caribbean. It's a little bit bigger than Galliano, right? Just to give you an idea. Uh, you could drive a circle in the island in less than an hour. All of the roads, there's not many, they lead to the same place, right? And we're, we're staying at this resort and my parents wanted to run an errand and I knew better. So I said, you guys go, I'm good. Julia went with them. What was supposed to be 30 minutes, they came back four hours later. And Julia's with them, losing her mind because they refuse to look at maps. They refuse to pull over and ask directions. Do you wanna know what they do? They go with their guts. And every single time, every single time, my mom will say this. I just, I just feel it's that way. I just, I just feel it's that way. It's always the opposite way. But they never do the opposite of what she suggests. And by the way, my mom's here today. So if you meet her, congratulate her on finding the location. Even when we are utterly lost, we still think, that we somehow can find our way out of it, that the solution somehow lies within us. But that's not the case. And it's especially not the case when it comes to God and things that really matter. We're completely off course if we're not clinging to Jesus. We have no compass and no ability to point ourselves in the right direction. And every time we try to course correct, we just end up further lost. And we're persistent in clinging to the wrong things. We hold them tight and we will not let them go. And so the question then is, when we realize this, when we realize that we're off course, when we realize that we can't find the right way, how then do we course correct? So let's get back to Peter. Peter, he knows this about himself too. He knows that he can cling to the wrong things. He does this time and time again. For example, when Jesus announced that he was going to be betrayed and crucified. Peter, he could not handle this. He said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He was clinging to his picture of what a Messiah should be. 
He was clinging to his picture of what Jesus' life should look like as it unfolds, and it didn't involve suffering, and it definitely didn't involve crucifixion. He was clinging to this picture of a conquering king rather than a suffering servant. And so when Peter addresses the crowd, and he addresses this healed man, he speaks from his own experience. He speaks from the knowledge of his own heart's proclivity to cling to the wrong things. And he responds by offering them all a crash course in course correction. He responds by preaching the gospel. Because he knows that the only way forward is the gospel. He knows that the only way forward is a sincere and true encounter with this Jesus who made the miracle possible. So he preaches this sermon. And there is so much to say about it. But I'm going to say three major things he says. First, to get people clinging to the right thing, Peter takes himself off the pedestal. Look at verse 12 with me. Peter says, why do you wonder at this, the miracle? Why do you wonder at the miracle? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And this, let's just be honest, this is a little bit of a miracle for Peter. In the Gospels, he loves to be at the center of attention. He wants to be at the center of attention. And now he's urging people not to look at him. Because the miracle is not about him. It's not about his power, not about his, his piety. It's not even about his own faithfulness. He points people away from stargazing at him. And he even points them away from staring at the miracle itself. Because it's about the name of Jesus that made the miracle possible. Second, to get people clinging to the right things. Peter gets them to address something deeper in their hearts. Something more insidious than just misplaced clinging. He gets them to address how their hearts are set to reject God. Look at verses 13 through 15. Peter describes the ways that the people rejected Jesus. And what he's doing, he's just rehearsing recent history for them. Look at just a few of the things he says. You delivered over and denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer instead. You killed the author of life. Now this, this might sound harsh, but these are just blunt statements of facts. This is what the people listening to Peter actually participated in. And Peter did too. When we read the Gospels, it was obvious that the people who were involved in this event, they were clinging to things, whether it was status quo or influence or power, and they could not handle the disruptive message of Jesus because it challenged everything they understood and had. And the verbs that describe this, this rejection of Jesus are just harsh. They delivered him over. They denied him. They killed him. It's utter rejection, and it gets uglier still. They asked for a murderer, a guy by the name of Barabbas, in exchange for the holy and righteous author of life. What sort of exchange is that? Peter is saying, you are the sort of people who would rather have a murderer in your midst than the author of life. Why? Because he's in good company. You're all murderers. And before we think Peter's being too harsh, he's not sitting in some ivory tower pointing his finger at people. He personally abandoned and denied Jesus. He played a part in it too. That was what happened at the first fireside. 
But some of you right now, you're, you're probably thinking, okay, historically, sure, this happened. I can, I can say these people were involved in this, but I wouldn't have done this. But is that true? Sure, you might not be a murderer, but think about all the little ways that you deny and reject God every single day. It could be a flat-out refusal to admit his existence. It could be that little indulgence that you have. It could be harboring that ill, ill feeling towards others. It could be your thought life and a place of fantasy that you go to escape when things get tough. It could be simply not listening to what you know God is calling you to do. But at the root of each of these little refusals is a bigger refusal. It's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be Lord over my life. I will still be my own little God. And here's the thing. In verse 17, Peter says, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know that you acted in ignorance. The people, Peter acknowledges, didn't fully understand what they were doing, but that doesn't make them any less guilty of what they did. You may not think that all the little ways that you reject God are all that bad, but your ignorance on the matter doesn't make your rejection any less severe. It might seem small, it might seem insignificant, but to the creator of the universe, it matters. And then Peter sums it up. In verse 26, he says, God wants to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And you think, wicked? Okay, like maybe I reject God, but wicked? I'm not wicked. The Bible is really clear. It says that actions flow out of our heart's disposition. And if in your heart you reject God, that will flow into everything you do. All of your actions will be a subtle rejection. And while they may not look like they equate to murder, our hearts are the type of people who would have participated in that crowd, who would have exchanged the author of life for Barabbas. And if that's true, then yeah, we're wicked. That's evil. But simply realizing something about ourselves isn't always the most helpful thing, is it? When I was growing up, One of my good friends, Ted, uh, we were, what, 19 at the time. We're driving in his car, and out of nowhere, he just said, Alistair, if I was going to sum you up in one word, that word would be confused. And I just, looking back, like looking back at 19-year-old Alistair from this vantage point, like, yeah, I was confused. But in the time, my response was like, what? Like, I'm confused. Like, why do you think I'm confused? Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why would you call me a confused individual, which was like, The perfect response from someone who's confused. Can't understand why someone would think they're confused. But him pointing it out, it was about as effective as a dunce cap. You know, simply to to point out someone's shortcoming doesn't actually address the issue. Something needs to be done on their behalf so that something can change, so that they're not confused anymore, or that they're not wicked anymore, or that they're Wickedness is dealt with. See, Peter, he's not, he's not sadistic. He's not, he's not trying to point out wickedness to be cruel or to be hateful or spiteful towards humanity. He's, he's trying to get us to acknowledge and own who we are. So when he preaches the gospel and what God did, it becomes that much more beautiful. So when we, when we look at how he continues into his third point, 
as we talk about what God did for us, keep in mind that God did this for people who reject him, for people who are fundamentally wicked in his eyes. So the third point, to get people clinging to the right thing, Peter points them to Jesus. He points them to the one they rejected. And so verse 17 tells us how they're supposed to cling to Jesus in one word, repent. And I get it, this word repent, it might just have a lot of baggage for you. So let me unpack it in a simple way. Repenting is turning away from one thing and turning towards another. It's it's turning away from our rejection of Jesus and turning towards him, the one we rejected. But the big question looming in this text is why? Why should we go through this course correction? Why should we turn, especially when we know that it's costly? And now it seems more costly to turn to a means to acknowledge that I'm someone who's wicked, that I'm someone who's rejected God. It may be costly to repent. But what's clear in this text is God is not about cursing, he's about blessing. Again, listen to verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. We're blessed by God because he wants to turn us away from that, that God will meet us and he will act in our lives to open our eyes and turn us away from our wickedness. And then Peter talks about what we're turned towards. First, we turn away from our rejection of God and we turn towards God's forgiveness. Verse 19, turn that your sins may be blotted out. Now for most of us here, Um, We get so used to hearing this language, Jesus forgives your sins, that it almost loses its, its profundity and its meaning. Think about the context here. Peter is saying this to a group of people who actually rejected Jesus. He's saying, you can be forgiven for murdering the author of life. Because that's the beautiful power of the cross. The author of life dies and murderers go free. The author of life dies and murderers go free. Here's the thing, you might not realize the extent um, to which you've sinned against God, the extent to which you need this forgiveness. You might not even fully agree with what I've said about you or about us, about myself. But if it's true, even in your ignorance, even if you don't fully understand the weight of your sin, the gravity of it, and I think, frankly, none of us fully understand the weight of our own sin. It doesn't make our need for forgiveness any less true, which is why on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's the thing. I don't don't know what's eating you up inside. I don't know the mistakes you've made or the mistakes you're making. But God is in the business of blotting out our sins. You can turn to the cross and he will embrace you at your worst, no matter what you've done, and he will wipe the record clean. Second, we can turn away from our rejection of God and we can turn to God's refreshing presence. Verse 20, turn that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And honestly, To me, this is the best part of the passage. Our sins, our misplaced clinging, our rejection of God no longer separate us from the presence of God. 
And Peter, he knows this firsthand. This is what his second fireside experience was all about. Jesus meeting him in his worst, meeting him in his betrayal, meeting him in his cowardice, and embracing him there. I don't, some of you might have gone through some intense suffering. You might have lost loved ones. And we can always remember how people comfort us, can't we? Right? Like people who comfort us poorly, you can remember the words they said, can't you? Like you can call those to mind. Like they just said the wrong thing and it hurt and it would have been better if they never came. What's interesting though is the people who comfort us well, um, we can never really remember what they said, can we? But we can remember their presence. And we can remember that their presence mattered. This is a sort of comfort that Christ's presence offers us. It refreshes us. It eradicates our shame and our guilt. It eradicates our fear. It eradicates our clinging to false senses of security. It eradicates the things that we so desperately want to hold on to. But then he gives us something so much better, a refreshing comfort. Third, we turn away from our rejection and we turn to God's restoration. Peter says, Turn that God may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. By accepting Jesus, we find ourselves joining God in the renewal of all things. This is what happened at the second fireside for Peter. He sent out, he sent out on God's mission. He goes out and joins God's mission in the world to bring restoration to people. That's what's going on with this healed man in the story. This is simply a flash forward into what one day will be when Christ returns and makes all things new. And we know this because it's actually the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah in chapter 35. The lame man shall leap like a deer. This describes the new heavens and the new earth when suffering and death and sin will be eradicated. And we're getting a glimpse of it. Peter and the crowd, they're getting a glimpse of how things will ultimately be when God restores everything. And between now and then, Jesus is in the business of binding things up, of restoring things, of restoring our hearts, of binding us up so that we no longer have this proclivity towards sin. He restores us and then we get to play our part in extending that restoration into the world by following him, faithfully doing what he asks us. And so to sum up Peter's sermon, he says that we cling to the wrong things and that our hearts are ultimately set to reject God. But when we repent, when we turn away from our rejection, we turn towards God's forgiveness, God's refreshing presence, and God's restoration. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is Peter's crash course and course correction. When we are off course, we turn to the gospel. The gospel is what saves us. The gospel is what transforms us. The gospel is how we find our way forward. So then how do we cling to the right things? We look to Jesus. That's at the heart of this text, looking to Jesus, trusting him. Peter says in verse 16, it's faith. It's faith that made this man well. That's how we cling to Jesus. We trust him. We place our faith in him. We turn and look to him and we say, all I know of me towards all I know of Jesus. And I don't care if you've ever been a Christian or if you've been a Christian a long time. That is always the sentiment of our hearts. 
all I know of me and what I continue to learn about myself today towards all I know about Jesus and what I'm continuing to learn about who he is and whatever the gap is, I trust that Jesus reconciles it. And finally, I want to draw out one last implication because I think for each of us, we might be thinking, yeah, but should I turn to Jesus? Like, like should I do this? Should I, should I let go of this, this thing that I'm clinging to? If the blessings alone aren't appealing enough, Peter makes one thing very clear. Jesus is at the center of what God is doing in the world. He says that Jesus fulfilled all of the work that God was doing through his people. And he throws out some titles. He says he's the suffering servant. He's the Mosaic prophet. He's the true king. He's the seed of Abraham. And I wish we could unpack all of this, but I know some of you want to get lunch. Essentially what Peter is saying, he's, he's everything God's people had been waiting for and hoping for. Peter's saying that God had been leading the world's history to the cross, to Jesus, to his resurrection from, his de- from death and, and to his glorification. That God had been leading his people and the whole world to this moment, to this encounter. And so we have to ask them, what does that mean for us? It means that God is the type of God who woos and moves the world, including you, towards Jesus. God is the type of God who woos and moves the world, including you, towards Jesus. Maybe you keep having conversations about Jesus, like it just keeps coming up. Or you pick up articles, or you see Facebook posts. Maybe you're having dreams or a thought that just keeps recurring that you can't shake, but you get this sense that God is leading you to this point of accepting Jesus. Or maybe the things that you're clinging to are starting to crumble. The relationship fell apart or the career is not working out. Whatever it is, you're looking at it and you're thinking, there's got to be more, but I don't know what's next. And you get this inclination that maybe it is turning towards Jesus. Or maybe you don't think you're clinging to anything at all. But inside your heart, your relationship with God just feels dry and empty and you're running on the fumes of your past faithfulness. And what you really do is still you're clinging to what you've done in the past rather than clinging to Jesus in the present. And again, what this text tells us is what is getting in the way between you and Jesus is that your heart is fundamentally set to reject God. So turn to him. Allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in your life because God has gone to great, great lengths to bring Jesus to the center of your life and to bring Jesus to the center of the world's attention and to ultimately one day put Jesus at the center of the universe and the world's stage. And it, the text warns us very solemnly in, in verse 23 that at the restoration of all things, there will be no place for people who continue to reject Jesus. And that sounds harsh, but... To reject Jesus is to ultimately reject life itself. It is to reject the author of life, the one whose breath is but borrowed from his lungs that's passing through your lips and nose. You're rejecting life if you don't turn to Jesus. And so I want to ask, like, whatever it is you're clinging to, whatever that might be, can it match the surpassing treasure of Christ? Can it match 
and even come close to the author of life and what he offers us. Forgiveness, refreshing presence, restoration. This is the sort of community that we dream St. Peter's will be. A community that stops clinging to the wrong things. A community that puts Jesus at the center of everything we do. A community that knows that Jesus holds on to us and will not let us go.